you're taking your seats, I'm going to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 14. And as you're turning your Bibles, I just wonder if I can begin by asking you a question. Have you ever wondered or thought about what it would be like to be a missionary? Some of you in here, you've actually done that. You've been there and you've got vivid memories of what that means and what that looks like. But I wonder for the rest of us, the vast majority of us, when we think of the concept of being a missionary and maybe that calling upon a life, I wonder what comes to your mind. I wonder what it is that pops into your head when you think of a missionary. Do you think of that person who is called to leave everything and go to a place where they don't know the language, they don't know the people, and they don't know the culture, and they have to kind of relearn all of these things to be able to pour into a a different people group, the gospel of Jesus Christ? I wonder if that's what comes into your mind. I wonder maybe if what comes in your mind is a life of poverty and a life of, you know, maybe investing yourself in really costly ways into people and then coming back on furloughs and sharing your story with churches and trying to get enough money just to make it back and to continue the work of the Lord. I wonder if some of you think of that idea of being a missionary, and in your mind, you're thinking right now, I could never do that, right? Lord, please don't ever call me to something like that. Well, I got news for you today. That is exactly what the Lord has called you to. He's called every one of us as a Christian to embrace this concept of being a missionary. Our problem is is the picture we often have of what it means to be a missionary instead of realizing that that is the very disposition of the Christian's heart and it should be the very picture of the Christian's life. You see, we are called to make disciples. That is who we are. That is the very mission of the church, and that is the very mission of every single individual Christian. It is to be a disciple maker. If I could frame it another way, to be a disciple maker is to be a missionary, isn't it? And we've looked in Acts at the mission of the Apostle Paul as he continues to embrace the very heart of God to go out to the nations with the gospel. We saw last week that his objective, and we saw this for ourselves, is we preach Christ. And this week, we need to embrace this reality. We make disciples. We make disciples. This is the calling of the Christian. And I want to show you, and I just want to point you to one verse in particular, maybe two, Um, in, In Acts chapter 14, that this entire passage really revolves around. Look at your Bibles at verse 21 and 22. Luke writes these words. He says, when they, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city, and listen to this, and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. There it is again, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I just want you to see that this entire passage is wrapped around these two verses. Everything before these verses flows into this picture that the mission of the apostle Paul and Barnabas was to make disciples. And then we'll see flowing right from here is how those disciples are cared for repeatedly. This is not, by the way, making disciples just the role of the institutional church. 
Some of us have this mentality that to make disciples is the job of the church, or maybe it's simply the job of a paid staff person, or maybe it's the role of somebody who went to Bible college or seminary, and I just want that, that thought so far removed from your mind today. I want you to see that the calling on your life is simply this, to make disciples. It is the job, not simply of the institutional, organized church, it is the job of individual people who make up the church of Jesus Christ. The only question we need to ask ourselves this morning is this, are we available to God to be disciple makers where we are? It's irrelevant where it is It only matters, it's only relevant, it's only material, listen, that it is. Jesus said in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, right? Go therefore unto all nations, and what's the key to that? And make disciples. Baptizing them, that is to say, saving them, seeing them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, being used by the grace of God to lead them to that truth, and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, maturing them in the faith. But don't miss this. Jesus says, go, go and make disciples. If you're saved, you are a disciple maker. And it doesn't, by the way, matter where you go, it only matters that you go. We are called to make disciples. The only question is, are we doing it, and are we any good at it? And that's what I'm concerned about this morning as we look at God's word. I think we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, and what we see are some very helpful truths that make us effective ministers of the gospel, effective disciple makers. So you can just begin with this thought in your mind. If I am going to make disciples, and I trust that you are, I trust that's your desire this morning, I must, here's the first thing, exhibit spiritual courage. I must exhibit spiritual courage. Remember, the Apostle Paul has just been driven out for preaching the gospel, he was in Iconium. Excuse me, he's gone to Iconium. He's filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. He's no longer welcome in the previous section of Scripture we looked at. So he goes on to where he will be welcomed. It says in verse 1, Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers so that they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Paul and Barnabas, they follow their basic strategy of evangelism. You'll notice this. They first go into the synagogue and they begin to preach Christ. They unfold that picture that we saw last week of Christ being the culmination of human history, the hope of salvation for all of humanity. They begin to preach the basics of the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived as the Son of God. He died to pay the price for sins and he was raised to life. We saw that emphasized last week. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures. This is why he goes into the synagogue to elevate this picture of Christ as being the fulfillment of the word of God. The Messiah that they've been looking for is here and there is salvation in no other name under heaven, only Jesus Christ. But you'll notice this pattern of faithful ministry. They preach, they experience a measure of success, and then they experience a great degree of persecution and opposition. It just is a relentless pattern we see over and over in the book of Acts. 
You see that in verse 1 and 2? I love the fact that it says they spoke in such a way. They are powerful preachers. The content of the gospel, I believe, is emphasized there. But the way in which they communicated is of vital importance. And a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. I mean, this is a successful, fruitful ministry. And all discipleship making begins right here with people being saved by the grace of God. But you'll notice verse 2, really quickly, the unbelieving Jews, as is common in all of the places that they go to, the unbelieving Jews begin to stir up the Gentiles, and they poison the minds against the brothers. They begin to attack Paul and Barnabas. They begin to spew all kinds of vitriol and venom about them and about their message. Look, we need to embrace this reality that gospel success always brings intensified opposition. Faithful gospel preaching in your life and mine, just like in the Apostle Paul's, will oftentimes bring varied responses from people. Some people get saved, praise the Lord. Some people remain unconvinced, and some people become just rabid enemies of the gospel and of the church of Jesus Christ. I believe in in our evangelistic efforts or lack thereof, one of the greatest deterrents to us being faithful with the gospel is a fear, a fear of making enemies, a fear of opposition, a fear of what people will think of us, what they might say about us, what they might do to us. There is in some of our minds this idea that because we face opposition, we may be doing something wrong, right? That if we do things right, then, then everything should go smoothly. I mean, we should never ha- have upset you know, the apple cart. We shouldn't be rocking the boat too much. If people are upset, that's our fault. And the reality is, when we look at the Gospels, oftentimes faithfulness to proclaiming Christ is the very thing that incites opposition. So rather than being oftentimes the thing that shows us we're doing something wrong, opposition and persecution are often evidence that we're doing something, come on, church, what is it? Right, right. Now, not always. I'll get to that in a minute. But listen, it's often fear of making enemies or the fear of opposition that that prevents some of us from proclaiming Christ. I love what Winston Churchill once said. He said this, you have enemies, good. That means that you've stood up for something at some time in your life. There's so much biblical truth in there. And Jesus said this, didn't he? He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but what? but the sword. It's important to remember that we're not signing up for a life of ease when we become a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, nobody knew this perhaps better than the Apostle Paul. Do you remember in his conversion experience, do you remember what the Spirit of God, what Jesus Christ himself says to Paul? I must show you how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul knew this in advance. It's just good for us to know that that we ought to embrace this reality and we need, we desperately therefore need, because we are inciting opposition, we need to be exhibiting a spiritual courage. And let me just maybe parse that for you for just a minute. What I'm not talking about here is this just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I can be strong enough. I can be resilient enough kind of courage. That's worldly courage. We're not interested in worldly strength and worldly courage. We're interested in holy spirit powered, right? Spirit filled living which produces spiritual courage. A courage, listen, that is so often outside of ourselves and in spite of ourselves, it is a gift from God to those who are faithfully pursuing the Lord. 
And that's Paul, isn't it? I love verse 3. This is such a fascinating thing to, to look at and understand. Notice the word, first word, so, it says, or it can be translated, therefore. So in other words, because of the persecution, they remained for a long time, notice this, speaking boldly for the Lord, there's the courage, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. It's just so fascinating, just consider that so, or therefore, or because, at the beginning of verse three, you see the gospel goes forth both in spite of persecution, you know what I mean by that? So we get persecuted, is that gonna shut the, the, the work, the, the forward movement of the gospel down? No, but you need to see this, the gospel goes forth not just in spite of persecution, but because of persecution. See, we look at persecution so often as a bad thing, right? Oh, it's horrible that the church is being persecuted when the reality is in the life of the church, persecution is the very thing that God uses to propel the gospel forward, deeper, to more unreached people groups, to more people who've never heard the goodness of Jesus Christ. You see, God uses the evil and wickedness of the world to his benefit for his glory, amen? How much, how much courage should that instill in the hearts of God's children? Persecution often, you'll notice this, creates the environment in which boldness and courage can often occur. I mean, maybe you've wondered, like, I've never experienced spiritual courage like that. I can just tell you this. One of the reasons may be you've never put yourself in a position to experience or to need spiritual courage like this. And I can tell you that sometimes, sometimes God thrust us because of faithfulness into times where people are at us and people are, you know, metaphorically speaking, throwing stones at us and hurling insults and abuse at us. And it is in those moments that we're often inclined to see the power of God working in and through us in a way we know is not us. God gives courage to stand for truth. God gives courage to respond in grace, in love, and with truth. In church, if we're going to make disciples, we need spiritual courage. There's no doubt about it. We need commitment to the truth, and we need to understand that commitment to the truth will cost you. And so here's, here's my encouragement, my exhortation for your heart and for mine. Be fearless in your proclamation. Be fearless in your proclamation. Just don't be obnoxious in your proclamation, okay? The mission moves forward when Christians refuse to be shut down and when Christians spiritually, spirit-filled refuse to be shut up and shut down. So often I think we're guilty of throwing the towel in and assuming the doors have been closed in our lives and I'm not gonna, pers- I'm not gonna have courage to keep sharing Christ with my neighbor because that one time I, I, I took a step of faith and shared Christ, they got angry or they shut it down really quick so I guess the door's closed. I just want you to know you're gonna need more courage than that if you're gonna see the gospel move forward in the relationships that God has given you in your life. That one time that person said no when you asked them to church should not be the end of your efforts, church. Have some courage. Get out there and keep talking to people about Christ regardless of the cost to you. Some of us haven't even got that far yet. We just simply need to commit this morning to be sharing Christ with someone. Who's that person in your life that you know God has laid on your heart to share Christ with? And will you commit to leaving this church this morning with a plan to share Christ with them? Very clearly, Paul and Barnabas exhibit such incredible spiritual courage. 
I love as they preach the word of his grace. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful reminder that in our courage, we're courageous because what we bring to people is the word of his grace, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's why we have courage, because what we offer people is the only hope. Grace, excuse me, is undeserved merit or favor. So what we offer people, this is why we have courage, we offer people a hope that they don't have apart from Christ. We offer people the grace that their sins can be forgiven. We offer people the grace that God can accept them as they are and change them into who he wants them to be. We offer them the grace that they will not die and be punished in hell forever, but they will be embraced and warmly welcomed into heaven with God. That is the word of grace that we present to people, and so we need courage. We need to exhibit spiritual courage. Secondly, notice this though, uh, and we need to exercise spiritual wisdom. We need to exercise spiritual wisdom. Look at verses four through seven with me. It says this, but the people of the city were divided and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when the attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Paul and Barnabas were bold, but they weren't foolish. The Lord protects his children, but he calls us to exercise spiritual wisdom. And listen, just because we aren't fearful of opposition and persecution doesn't mean that we can't also flee from it. Isn't that good news for some of you, right? You're like, okay, good. I want you to notice how twice actually in this chapter, Paul and Barnabas leave an evangelistic situation because of the hostile environment. And by the way, this is the very thing that happened to them in chapter 13. Remember, they shook the dust off their feet. I mean, the persecution is being ramped up against them and they flee, they leave. Verse six tells us that, that they learned of it and they fled. Verse 20 says, Essentially the same thing. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. He left after he was, as we'll see, stoned and left for dead. And I think this is so helpful because courage and wisdom combine to produce an effective disciple-making strategy. They were certainly not timid, let's be clear about that. I mean, just look at what they had done. They remained for a long period of time. They proclaimed the word with boldness. They didn't just flee at the the sign of, of danger right away. But it was clear to them at this point, God was making it clear that it was time to leave. It was no value of them to stay. The people were so riled up, the situation was so bad that the gospel actually wasn't gonna make too many more inroads at this point in time. And so it was better, it was better for the church, it was better for the believers there, and we have to believe it was better for Paul and Barnabas, right? To get out of town, but notice what they do. Do they just kinda leave and hide under a rock and wait till everything's safe? No. No, their mindset is this. God has closed the door here, so what has he done over here? He's opened the door. This is God's doing. God's making it clear. Don't spend all my time here. Go to where I am leading you. So the principle for us is that when staying on would do more harm than good, we should consider leaving and looking for a more fruitful area. I mean, even Jesus advised doing this. Even Jesus said that you're gonna go into some cities and some places and they're gonna hate you, they're gonna reject you, and you need to dust you know, the sand off your feet and you need to move along to the next place. 
And so while we need courage, Christian, listen, there are times when wisdom suggests that we move away temporarily from an explosive situation. There there are too many people maybe who wrongly think that there's something noble about facing persecution even if you don't have to. Remember reading in church history in the first uh, in second century, it became something noble to be persecuted for the faith. So oftentimes, even very well-known Christians of the, t- of the day, and pastors and bishops and all of that, they were actually seeking persecution, right? It was a badge of honor. It was something that would, would give them some kind of a legacy. And I just want to encourage you, that is utter and complete foolishness. The Bible no way, in no way, in no shape or form, commends the seeking of persecution, Now, we know that we may face persecution, but that's an entirely different thing. And again, some of you are breathing a lot easier this morning, and that's a good thing, right? There there is such a thing in the Bible as sensible self-preservation, not because you're not willing to count the cost and suffer for Christ, but because you don't have to, and God is making that clear. And I was thinking this morning, how do we get this kind of wisdom? How do we know? And, and I think that Paul and Barnabas, they give us a little bit to work with. We don't have a whole lot. I mean, again, clearly, it took a little bit of time. Clearly, God had made some things known to them, right, to channels of individuals, providentially letting them know, listen, if you stick around any longer, I mean, these people are going to stone you to death. But I love what the book of James says. The book of James says, specifically when it relates to our trials, certainly this is a trial, that we can go to God and we can ask for wisdom who gives graciously or generously without partiality. God would have us do that. Go to Him and ask Him for wisdom. Make no mistake about it, often this is God's way of moving the mission forward. Maybe the person you've been trying to share Christ with, it's been going on for a long time. You know, you haven't thrown the towel in. Maybe you've been persisting even through some, some persecution as minor as that may be. And maybe God's saying, hey, maybe it's time for you to begin to focus your efforts and attention on someone else. Maybe God is even making that clear that there's a door been opened for an individual and the time that you've been spending persisting with somebody who is resisting, not just resisting, but adamantly opposing the truth that you're proclaiming, maybe God's saying, okay, let's let it sit for a while. Go on and spend your time with somebody who I have been preparing to hear from you. There's nothing noble about taking an unnecessary beating, praise the Lord. You see, we, might, we make disciples, and it requires of us spiritual courage. It requires of us spiritual wisdom. And if I'm going to make disciples, I must enlist spiritual power. I must enlist spiritual power. In other words, it's not something that, again, I can do in my own strength, my own power. I must know and experience and be calling forth the power of God to be manifested in me and through me. And Look at what happens as they move on to preach the gospel. Now they find themselves in Lystra, verse 8 tells us, which is about 20 miles southwest. It says, now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked, and he listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. 
and he sprang up and he began walking. This is an incredible turn of events. As Paul preaches the gospel in Lystra, you'll notice, you'll notice what came first here. It wasn't the miracle that came first. It was the proclamation of the gospel that came first. Do you see that there? Do you see in verse, uh, verse 9 there? He listened to Paul speaking. And, and the, the, the verb implies that he had been sitting there for some time. It may have actually been happening over some days, right? That he had been coming back. He'd been listening to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his heart was thrilled with the prospect of new life in Jesus Christ. I mean, surely he heard, he heard the truth, listen, that, that the dead are raised to life. Maybe Paul even saw him in the crowd and he saw some others who were maybe crippled or lame or disease-ridden or demon-possessed and he reminded them of the, the hope that they have because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that one day he will make all things new. However, it unfolded and Luke just kind of leaves it um, in one sense, he's not focusing on the content. We can be sure Paul preached the gospel. Everybody agree on that? Paul preached the gospel, amen? All right, and so what happens next is so powerful. He looks at this man and he heals him. And you ask the question, well, why? Why is the healing so significant? Look back up to verse three for a minute. They remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. Notice what it says, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. This is the normal apostolic pattern. They go from one place proclaiming Christ and God had given the apostles the gift of miracles, the gift of healing, and it was always, if you were with us last year, you'll remember back to this reality, right? The signs of an apostle, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, were, were signs that demonstrated, that validated both the message and the messenger. It was God's way of placing his stamp of approval on the ministry of these men. I mean, how was everybody to know that these men came from God with the true message of God? I mean, there are all kinds of charlatans. There are all kinds of false teachers. Paul says, I, I came to you with the signs of an apostle. I did things that not everybody could do. I showed you the power of God working through me in a way that was outside the norm, right? And here, here's what's happening. He is validating the message and he's validating his messengers. It's so powerful what he does. It says that Paul looked intently at him. I love this because here's what I want to drive home for you. I want you to see the faith of the apostle Paul here. I want you to see how unwavering he was in the confidence of the power of God working through him. He knew he had the gift of miracles. He knew he had the gift of healing. He knew what God was calling him to do and he did not hesitate, not for a moment. He looks at him intently and he declares with confidence and boldness. Now here's where a lot of us would be really shaky, right? I mean, how, how many of us would be like, well, I don't know if I should do this. I mean, maybe God won't really answer this time. I know, I know, I know, I know God's, God's allowed me to heal some people in the past, but maybe not now. Who knows? Maybe, maybe I shouldn't do this. It's not him at all. He doesn't waver. He looks at him intently and he says, stand on your feet. And the man, without hesitation, wants just the instantaneous, irreversible, 
nature of this miracle. He jumps to his feet. Man, a man who was born lame. He could never walk. He never had been able to. And instantly, think about the miracle of that. Instantly, all of a sudden, his legs go into working order. His muscles that were non-existent become full and alive and powerful. The neurons are firing through legs that have never been used before. He jumps up. He doesn't even have to learn to walk. That's a miracle too, right? He just starts walking. It's incredible power of God on full display. But church, don't miss this. Don't miss this. As great as the physical healing of this man is, it only points to the greater healing that is provided in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these people wrongly focus on the miracle instead of the message. The greatest spiritual power is seen when God gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead. And you may not have power, you may not have the gift of miracles, but I can promise you this, God has given you and he's given me the power to call people with confidence from death unto life. Isn't that awesome? You're like, wouldn't it be great to have the power of miracles? You have the power to give the miracle of new life. That is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And how many of us, how many of us, listen, here's the challenge for us this morning, how many of us fail to enlist spiritual power in our disciple making, in our proclamation of the word of God and the truth of Jesus Christ because, listen, here, here, because we don't have faith to believe that God will do what he promises to do. I was thinking about this this week. I mean, I think we make a whole lot of excuses as to why we don't evangelize. Isn't that true? I don't have time. Maybe I'm fearful. I didn't put it on my schedule, and so, you know, it's just not happening. I, I think we got to dig deeper than that, and here's what I want to challenge you with this morning. I believe that at a much deeper level, most of us don't evangelize because we really don't have the faith to believe that God will do what he says he'll do in us and through us. If we believe that when we preach the gospel, people were going to be saved, don't you think we'd be doing it a little more? If we believed with all of our heart that God's power would be manifested in us and as we share Christ, his spirit would take the word and drive it to the hearts of people who are hearing and he would bring new life to them, wouldn't we be preaching more? But so often we believe, see, the power is in ourselves. The power is in our own eloquence. The power is in our own wisdom. The power is in our own apologetics. And I just want to encourage you this morning, the power is in the word of God. And the spirit of God is moving mightily through faithful servants who do not shrink back, but in faith believe that God will do what he says he will do. There are too many wishy-washy Christians, no confidence in the power of God. And the way we Enlist spiritual power is by enacting faith. Faith that God will do what he says he will do. You, you lack faith to believe that God will use you to make disciples. That's what I want to challenge you with this morning. You say, well, well, do I really have the power to do that? Well, let me remind you of the very beginning of the book of Acts, the very kind of foundational verse for this entire book. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Don't you see? Why were they waiting? Why had they not gone out as soon as Jesus ascended? Because they were waiting for the power of the Spirit of God that would give them everything they needed, amen, to be effective witnesses for him. You have the same power in you. 
Christians, we just need to do what we've been empowered to do. Hudson Taylor, a famous missionary, contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, he started the China Inland Missions. He was a great man who had great confidence in the power and provision of God. He once said this famous phrase, he said, depend upon it, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. What confidence in the power of God. We are far too weak so often So often we're too weak because we lack faith. Our faith is so weak. We're far too often like weak people dying of starvation when we have a pantry full of food. So let the word of God call us to use what we have. Paul knew the power of the spirit of God that he had. He knew the calling of God upon his life and he was not ashamed and he had such incredible confidence Can I just encourage you, church, we we need to shift the way we think about what it means to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't ever share the gospel and not expect change. Let me say that again. Don't ever share the gospel and not expect change in somebody's life. Have faith to believe that this is what God will use. You are offering the very words of God and the very words of life. You must expect that God is going to use you and expect that God is going to change lives. Not by my might, not by my power, but by God's. When God's power is working through you to make disciples, it will be evident The question is, do we have faith to believe it? We desperately need to enlist spiritual power as we make disciples, and here's what's gonna happen. If God uses you, and if God continues to bless you because of that faithfulness and that faith you have and his power working through here, here's what you're gonna need. If you're gonna make disciples, you're gonna need to elevate spiritual humility. Elevate spiritual humility. So here's Paul. He's just called this man to begin walking. All of a sudden, he's thinking, certainly God's going to open the hearts of these people. I mean, certainly that would just stir people up to listen to what he was saying. But notice what happens, verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, it says they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Like I mentioned before, rather than paying attention to the message, they fix their eyes upon the messengers and they skew the whole thing. Now, you may be asking, why, why was this their assumption? Why did they default to this? I mean, certainly, the power of God on display, doing something that human, human beings couldn't normally do, was significant. But why was, why was this their default? Why were they calling them Zeus and Hermes? Well, the Lyconians had an ancient legend, this was commonly known in the land, that Zeus and Hermes had once come to the hill country disguised as mortals seeking lodging. They believed that in their past, Zeus, the the, the key god by the chief of all gods, and Hermes was the messenger god, they came to visit, kind of do a checkup, and what does the worship look like amongst the people, and how will we be received? And They asked a thousand homes, the legend says, and no one would take them in. Finally, they got to a humble cottage of straw and reeds, and this poor elderly couple named Philemon and Bacchus, they freely, they welcomed them in, they gave them a a feast, and they demonstrated just incredible hospitality with the meager means that they, they had. 
And in appreciation, as the, the legend goes, the gods transformed the cottage into the temple of Zeus. It was the very spot where they say they built the temple of Zeus. And they made the couple priests and a priestess, and when they died, they were immortalized as a great oak and a great linden tree. They really loved trees, apparently. But with the inhospitable homes, with all the people who rejected them, they destroyed, they utterly obliterated them. And so you can imagine as these, these Lyconians are seeing Paul and the power of God working through him, they're determined not to make the same mistake again. They're thinking, hey, this is history repeating itself. And so they look at Barnabas and Paul and they, they look at Barnabas. By the way, this tells us a little bit about maybe about the, the appearance or the demeanor of these two men. Barnabas is labeled as Zeus. It's possible that he was a, you know, kind of a big, burly, strong-looking man. Paul is Hermes. He's, he's the speaker. He's probably got this incredible ability, this oration, and he's just powerful in his speech. By the way, uh, the, in the previous section in Iconium, there we've, we're given uh, the, one of the only recorded descriptions of the Apostle Paul in history. And here's, here's what it says. Uh, they, they kind of said, I'm going to paraphrase it. Um, here's the way they, they looked at Paul. They said he was a man of a short stature, short and thick stature, he was bald, he had a unibrow, and he had bow legs. But, but listen, but, but he was strong in voice, and he often appeared to be like an angel, I said. Now, that should encourage us, right? God doesn't just use pretty people, apparently. Uh, but, but he uses other people powerfully. And so here, here they are being hailed and worshipped. Listen, as gods. Now, here's the problem. See, at this point, they're speaking in Lyconian, the word of God tells us there. They lift up their voice in verse 11 in Lyconian. And, and Paul and Barnabas have no clue. They don't understand that language. It's, not, it's a foreign language to them. And so they're trying to, pro- they're like, what's going on? Maybe people are really excited about the gospel. Yes, God's really working. And then all of a sudden, things begin to click. Look at verse 13. It says this. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. I mean, they're bringing sacrifices. They think that these are the gods themselves. And Paul and Barnabas, how do they respond? Notice in verse 14, but when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. They they tear their garments. There's a sign of shock, of outrage. They can't believe it. And they rush to the people and they want to set the matter straight. I just think it's interesting at this point just to consider how things may have gone. Could you imagine if Paul and Barnabas were tempted to embrace this praise? Hey, this isn't normally how we're received. This is pretty good. This feels all right. Just imagine for a second, that they were like so many Christians and sometimes Christian leaders and pastors who have, listen, destroyed or deterred their ability to have spiritual impact and influence because of their own pride. Because they're more concerned about being worshipped by people than they are that those people are worshipping God. 
Now, this would have been a primary opportunity to milk the ministry and benefit just a little bit. You know, maybe, maybe they even began to think, maybe this could actually benefit us. I mean, we're winning them over to ourselves, right? How many Christians think of this? Uh, they, look, at they love us. Maybe we could use this as a platform to later on, you know, once we've got our, our home and our cottage and our pool in the backyard, we could use this, right? We could even use that for hospitality purposes, Nothing wrong with those things, by the way. It's just how sad would it have been if they would have received the praise, stolen the glory. Maybe they thought about using these superstitious beliefs to their own advantage, and I know this isn't ideal, but we could use this popularity for the cause of Christ. Sadly, this happens in Christian lives all over the place. Sadly, this happens to Christian leaders all over the place. I, I was told just recently of a, a well-known pastor who will remain nameless, um, who demands that whenever he walks into the room, people stand for him. And, and he, he uses this, this, he says, you know, this is, this is my way of teaching people that they need to honor pastors. That sounds a whole lot like Jesus, doesn't it? I exist to be served rather than I exist to serve. What a difference in mentality, what a difference in humility. One chance for a little glory. They could be instant celebrities, but here's what we need to embrace, church. God doesn't want Christian celebrities. He wants humble people. Okay? He doesn't need you to be a Christian celebrity. He doesn't need you to be popular. He doesn't need you to be well-loved by the whole world. He needs you to be humble. God blesses humility. He opposes the proud. You want to be an effective disciple maker? You want to be an incredibly powerful influence for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Get yourself as low as you possibly can and don't receive any of the praise. Give it all back to God. I remember reading the story of one pastor who was visiting another well-known pastor's church. And as he was sitting talking to the man about just ministry in general, the, the famous pastor pointed to an individual walking by and he said, hey, look, there goes one of my converts. And he said, that's one of mine, not one of the Lord's. Such a great danger, listen, listen to winning people to ourselves but not winning them to the Lord. What a danger it is to try and steal glory from God, but what a powerful reminder that God's work must be done from the vantage point of humility. It is, you have to believe this, it is what God promises to bless. And so we need to be elevating spiritual humility in our lives. Effective discipleship always advances from a place of human weakness, not from a position of human strength. Just embrace this, church. God uses us because we're inadequate. And when we are used of God, it is the celebration of the supernatural, not the celebration of you or your own gifts. They tear their garments. They're so distraught. And I love this because we can learn a lot here. How do we avoid spiritual pride if we're being used by God? Well, the first thing we can do is we can just simply acknowledge who we are. Look at verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of like nature with you. We're just like you. We're not worthy of being praised. We're not worthy of being worshipped. We're, we're in the same place as you. We're in desperate need of hearing the good news. So we bring you, it says, the good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living idol who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
See, we can avoid spiritual pride and elevate spiritual humility by acknowledging who we really are. We're also in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're also in desperate need of the grace of God. We're simply vessels who bring a message of hope and salvation. And here's what we can do as well. Whenever you do get praise, deflect praise and glory back to its source. Give it back to God. I mean, God is the one who deserves all the praise and all of the glory. And you want to elevate spiritual humility, get, get, get people's eyes back on what really matters, right? Do you see that there? They get them back to the truth that they had certainly been proclaiming. They talk about the, the living God Turn from these idols. We're, we're here to tell you that these kind of idols, Zeus and Hermes, are nothing. They're vain idols. They're worthless. They're powerless. The true power belongs to one God alone, the living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. There's, there's a real great point of instruction here. Do you notice he's talking to a pagan people, um, not with a Jewish influence at this point. And what he does is he appeals not to the Old Testament primarily, he appeals to natural revelation. Watch what he does. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. In other words, God said, fine, go have your sin. Go worship the gods you want. Yet, verse 17 says, this is Romans 1, by the way, he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And his point is simple. Look, God, God, though he let you worship your own gods and your own worthless idols, he always made himself known. And his point is this. You are not without excuse. God has always made himself known in and around you. His common grace that's available to all should tell you that there is a source for this grace. We need to, like Paul, we can learn from this, is be sensitive to the culture that you're ministering to. He meets them where they're at. He meets them at that common ground. And and I think Paul would have certainly driven home the truth of the gospel. But what you need to see is this. The people were refusing to budge. And verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. They still can't help it. They still think they're in the presence of deity. Don't let anyone think that you're something. Let them see that Christ is everything. You want to make disciples, you need to elevate spiritual humility in your life. And lastly, you need to embrace spiritual persistence. This is unbelievable. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Just pause for a second. Remember Antioch and Iconium? That was the place he started at, right? That was the original sending church. That was where they prayed over him, they laid hands on him, and they commissioned him to go. That was 120 miles away through treacherous mountain passes in danger of robbers and rivers and all kinds of crazy things. Here, here's what you just need to see. Listen, the enemy of God is persistent. The enemy of God will stop at no lengths to destroy the messengers and proclaimers of God in the gospel. 120 mile journey, the enemies of God are so persistent and here's what they do, notice this, having persuaded the crowds, they rally the crowds, they poison their minds, they convince them that not only are these men not deities, they're actually blaspheming God. 
So I stir the pot, and it's so fascinating to me. Listen, this is, this is so true. This is, it's so fascinating. Some of the people who praise you the most at the beginning will turn on you the quickest at the end. And they drag him out of the city. You know what that means? They drag him off into the dump. They drag him off like a piece of garbage. And they stone Paul. Supposing that he was dead. Look at verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And I just want you to see this, that the Apostle Paul often talks about in the Christian life, agonizing, striving, pressing on the effort and the exertion that is required to be faithful to God. Faithful, listen, in the pursuit of holiness, right, to put sin to death, but faithful to promote and proclaim the cause of Christ. This is going to be costly. This is going to take effort. This is going to take resilience. And they drag him off. Think about this. They've stoned him to the point. Listen, you've got to picture the scene here. He is battered and bloodied. He is unconscious. They, pro- they think he's dead. And they haul him out and they throw him like a piece of garbage into the dump. The people of God are surrounding him, wondering what in the world's happening. Is this the end for our beloved Paul? And the incredible reality of this passage is this, that as the people of God surround him, and no doubt they pray for him, no doubt they're petitioning God, what happens? He rises up and he calls it quits. He marches right back into the same city and he probably finishes his sermon. I mean, look at the persistence of the Apostle Paul. He is beaten, he hobbles himself. Maybe they have to help carry him back in. And he goes right back to the city and no doubt he proclaims the gospel of Christ. And then what does he do? He goes on to the next place. He marches 93 miles to Derby. And then he ropes back around to every major city where he preached Christ, where he preached Christ and made disciples. And he begins to pour back into them and strengthen them. He had every reason to say, "You know what? I think I need a bit of a vacation." This is so so helpful to see. Listen, how many people, maybe even in this room, have faced near death at one point in their life? Maybe you've got a medical scare that's all of a sudden made you realize, maybe I don't have as long as I think I do. Maybe it's even somebody close to you who died well before their time, humanly speaking. Have you ever, have you ever met somebody who's approached death? They've been on death's doorstep. A lot of people, they they take that experience and it fuels them to now live their life with a new sense of purpose, doesn't it? A new sense of vitality, a new sense of passion. I mean, they have meaning. Here's why, here's why. Listen, they realize that life is short, that time is precious. There's no time to be fooling around with the things I've done in the past and I've wasted my life on. I could be after the things that matter most. How come we don't live like that all the time? Listen, the reality of death is 
there for every single one of us. Whether it's tomorrow, or whether it's in five years, or whether it's in 50 years, every one of us faces the inevitability of death. The question we need to ask ourselves is this, are we wasting our time with trivial, petty little things, or are we getting after what God is calling us to do, make disciples? That's my plea to you. That's my plea to you this morning. Listen, will we be a people, listen, whether you've been coasting along in the Christian life or you've not, maybe you've not actually invested yourself in this pursuit and you've called yourself a Christian for a long time and you've been you know, dabbling with all kinds of things that at the end of the day won't ultimately matter, can I just encourage you, it's not too late, it's not too late, it's not too late. Now, now is the time God may be looking at you and saying, what will you do with the rest of your life? Will it matter for eternity? Will you make it count? Will you pour the gospel into those who desperately need it? Would you begin to notice or to see in yourself that your time may be more limited than you realize? And if that doesn't spur you on, would you look at other people around you and realize that they might not have that long either? Richard Baxter, the famous Puritan preacher, said this, I preach as a dying man to dying men. Oh, that we would live with that kind of mentality. We all live facing the reality of death. And if we're going to make disciples, we need to embrace spiritual persistence. God wants a persistent people. He wants a people, listen, who are in it for the long haul and where we've failed, God is gracious and God will meet us where we are and God says, okay, okay, maybe that's behind you, but forgetting what lies behind, what does Paul say? Press on, right? Agonize for what lies ahead. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God is looking for people who are willing to live for what matters most and willing to face the challenges of making disciples even, even if it means giving their lives. And here's the truth, church, here's the truth. It will cost you your life if you take this call seriously. It will cost everything of you to devote yourself to what matters most, but we, listen, we joyfully give our lives to make disciples because Jesus Christ joyfully gave his life to make us a disciple, amen? We give our lives to be used by God to give others life. Stay at the task, church. And if you're not staying at the task, get back on to the mission of God. Persist with those who reject. Fight for those who are struggling. Go after those who are far from the Lord. We live to make disciples. You want to make disciples? Exhibit spiritual courage. Exercise spiritual wisdom, enlist spiritual power, elevate spiritual humility, and embrace spiritual persistence. That's how we make disciples, and that's how the mission of the church keeps moving forward. God, we pray that you would drive this truth so deeply into our hearts. Oh God, may we not be a church and not be a people who waste the time that you've given us. May we see, Lord, in the life of the Apostle Paul and the ministry of the early church, Lord, the, the urgency, the desperation, the life-giving sacrifice to tell others about the gospel, to make disciples. God, I pray for those in this room who are are in need of becoming a disciple, of committing, of surrendering their life to Christ. And God, I pray that you would work right now in their heart to show them, Lord, the cost of discipleship, the cost of Jesus Christ, God in flesh, giving his life, shedding his blood, forgiving of sins, raising the dead to life, 
God, I pray that you would cause some even in this place to repent and believe. Lord, in this moment, and God, I pray that you would give us faith to believe that you want to use us. Lord, your power through us to declare this message of hope to a lost and dying world. Lord, may we be, as Richard Baxter says, a dying people, preaching to dying people. God, may we have confidence that you are greater. It is your power, Lord, in our weakness. So God, use us to put your power on full display so that we might give you all of the praise and all of the glory for all that you will do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.